Okay, that being said, let's jump into things tonight. Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this evening. Philippians chapter 4. If you're um, following along uh, in our series on vision and values, and you have that bookmark, some of you guys have uh, the, the bookmark that has all of our values on it. We're on value number seven, the number of perfection. So no biggie. Just has to be a really good uh, value <laughs> this evening. And if you don't have one of those bookmarks, we have more out in the uh, annex um, on the info desk. So grab one of those. Um, let's read together Philippians chapter four, verse four. It says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. One of the things that I experienced when I was in high school was just this incredibly uh, increased level of anxiety. Has anybody been there, like high school hit, and all of a sudden you're like, I am an anxious mess. Um, and along with that anxiety came this level of depression. Um, not too uncommon for a high schooler to experience with a whole new social setting to navigate. Um, but I just remembered all these floods of emotion and am I missing out? What, what are they saying behind my back? What's going on over here? I don't even understand what they just said to me. Is that funny? Should I laugh? I don't know. And not to mention trying to navigate relationships in high school. Just if you're a high schooler, never date. Just never date. Just wait until you're out of high school. It's just so much pressure. And I remember, you know, I would go have fun with my friends. We would see a movie or we'd go to a concert and we'd come home. I'd come home from that and it would just be me in my room. And I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, that was amazing. So much fun. Oh, just reliving the moment. And then I'd realize, but I'm alone. I'm all by myself sitting here. And I remember, you know, what my life, have you guys ever heard this term, the hedonic treadmill? Have you guys ever heard of the hedonic treadmill? It, 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 so hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, right? 
and you guys all know what treadmills are. And so you put them together, and it's like life for many people in our culture. It's like they're on this treadmill constantly in pursuit of the next pleasurable experience. But they're never going anywhere because they're just in, standing in one place on this treadmill just constantly reaching for the next moment of happiness. I'm like, when I, found, when I heard of that concept, I'm like, that explains 16. <laughs> that was everything that 16 was. I just had this diminishing level of hope as I went through high school. And I remember I, thinking, like, as I would fall asleep, there has to be more than what I'm currently experiencing. I just, uh, please let there be more. And, and so one of the reasons that I, I gave my life to Jesus was that I had never tasted that kind of peace and that kind of joy anywhere else. Just all of the, the primary thing to leave my life when I started following Jesus was my anxiety, was my depression. It was like instantly. And the primary thing to come into my life was this deep sense of joy. I think I've shared this with you guys before. But I, I remember after I started following Jesus, I would have these socially, these social situations where somebody would insult me or do something to me that you would think, oh man, you should get mad at that person. Like, what? I can't believe that they treated you that way. And I remember just thinking, it's okay, I got his joy. Just like totally fine. As I'm doing the calculation in my head, I'm like, if I have him, it doesn't matter. Tonight's value for our church is this. We are a people filled with hope and joy. We are a people filled with hope Enjoy the simple call tonight for us as a church is to be a people of hope and joy because Jesus has defeated death and sin. The greatest fear of most people is dying. What's going to happen after I die? I don't want to die. I finally figured out how to figure out a life here on earth. And if there is a question that many struggle with throughout their entire existence of being alive, it's this, if there is a God, what does he think about me? And as followers of Jesus, we have both of those questions answered. And because of that, we can be a people of hope and a people of joy. His resurrection is my resurrection. His resurrection is your resurrection. Do you believe that? You know, if there's something that's lacking in our world today, it's hope and joy. It's just impossible to find in our culture. You see it falsely manu manufactured through experience, through materials or sex, or having just enough distance from pain and suffering to trick your mind into some level of hope and joy. My wife and I, we went to um, see Coldplay a couple years ago down in San Francisco. And I really like Coldplay, but this last album was kind of just like a, a giant marshmallow, in my opinion. It was like you get there to the concert and the whole thing is like, everybody love everybody. Stop disagreeing with each other. Just sing these songs. It's going to be awesome. Have hope. And I'm like, that's not real hope. Just the light up wristband isn't real joy. This is all temporary. I'm like, dang it. Why did I have to be thinking this way? Why can't I just enjoy the concert, right? The real thing is so rare. And in this passage that we just read, Paul, who, who wrote this book, this letter, is in prison. <laughs> and while he's in prison, he's saying to people outside of prison, rejoice always. I think I need to say it again, rejoice. 
Be a people of joy. Now, why would he say this? Why would he command this so strongly? How do you get joy? If you're here tonight, you're like, we're people of hope and joy. Well, uh, I'm not. How do you get it? Why, Why is it so important? Well, joy is strength. Did you know that? Joy is incredible strength. It says this in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. In Psalm 16, I think it's my favorite psalm ever, it says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The truth is that you will never be stronger than your joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You will never be stronger than your joy. The other truth is this, you will never be stronger than the level of awareness of his presence with you. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. But joy also distinguishes you. It says this in Psalm 45, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by what? Anointing you with the oil of joy. How are you set above your companions? By God placing his joy on you. Joy is so unique. It's often faked, but the real thing, when you really have joy, it will set you apart from the world quicker than any other character trait. And I honestly believe that the most joyful person in a room is the most trustworthy person in that room. The more joyful a person is, the more trustworthy that person becomes. Why is that? Well, because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And so I can trust that they're not manufacturing this happiness on their own, but it's actually from dependence on the Spirit. I can trust them because they are trusting Him. Joy makes you trustworthy. You know, um, joy is actually so rare in our world today that many use its absence in the life of others to control them. Like if you think about our entire, um, just what advertising is, it's you lack joy, this thing will give you joy, so you should buy it, you should participate it, you should experience it. So think about this, the joyful person, when you really have joy, you are uncontrollable. You can't be controlled anymore because the person who has joy doesn't play by the same rules as everybody else. So when I know that somebody has joy, I can trust that they're not going to use methods of manipulation on me because a truly joyful person just longs for other people to have what they have rather than manipulating them to get something else out of them. They don't need it. They're full of joy. Um, my, My favorite book in the Chronicles of Narnia is The Silver Chair. Any fans out there, The Silver Chair? It's like the best one. It's so good. Um, there's this moment at the very beginning of the book where Eustace, if you remember him, he's, he's kind of a, a little bit of a pill. Um, he's been a pretty mean kid in the past, and he's talking with his schoolmate, Jill. And uh, Jill says this to him. She says, you know, everybody is noticing that you changed over summer. What's going on? What happened to you? You're different this school year. And then she says this. She says, it's not only me that's noticing, said Jill. Everybody's been saying so. They've noticed it. Eleanor Blackiston heard Adela Pennyfather, how's that for a name, talking about it in our changing room yesterday. This is what she said. Someone's got a hold of that scrub kid. He's quite unmanageable, this term. 
We shall have to attend to him next. What's happened to him? Well, if you know, he met Aslan. He met Jesus. And he can't be managed by the old school hierarchy any longer because he's hopeful. His identity is settled. He's full of joy, and so he's free. See, joy can produce freedom because it doesn't need anything to happen or change in order to increase in your life, which leads to a life that isn't controlled by disappointment or lack. <laughs> We're supposed to be a people of joy. Peter Kreeft, I've quoted him like eight times now, I think, at this church. <laughs> he says this, fearlessness comes from heavenly joy. Joyless people are weak, weary, and apathetic, Bowled over by the little things, especially personal relationships. They interpret teasing as insult, play as irresponsibility, and disagreement as personal attack. Which pretty much sums up the entire political climate on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> right there. The point is this, it is miserable to live without joy, and that's why I'm thankful that we don't have to. See, um, have you ever thought about this? The Holy Spirit gives us gifts, and then there's also this thing called fruit of the Spirit. And gifts are something that you're given, you, you, can't, you didn't do anything to earn it, you didn't, get, you didn't like convince the Spirit, give me that gift. It just is a freely given thing. When you get the Spirit, you get his gifts. But the fruit of the Spirit is really interesting. It's the fruit of the Spirit. What does it mean? What is fruit? Well, fruit is a seed that was planted, and because of the correct conditions, it actually come, came to be. And it became useful. Fruit comes from being connected to the vine. So how do you get joy in your life? You get close to him. See, sometimes when we talk about joy or we talk about hope or these things, I was feeling this even as I was writing this. There's this like, well, I don't have joy or I don't have hope. I, I guess I'm gonna try to be joyful. Whoa, 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 time out. You've already lost the battle because the battle wasn't about you trying. It was about you surrendering in connection to the Father. It's your connection to the vine that produces fruit. Joy's fruit. It's a natural byproduct of relationship. So, so do you want joy this evening? because it's available to you. And when you have joy, I promise you this, joy always leads you into hope. It says this in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all what? Joy, so weak, and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the connection? Joy and peace come as you what? Trust him so that you overflow with what? Hope. So if you don't have joy or peace, then you actually have to look back and go, I wonder if I'm really trusting him. Because it says in the scriptures, if I trust him, I overflow with joy, peace, and hope. Um, I had a friend of mine who was visiting a couple years ago, and, and she told me this when she was in town. She said, the person with the most hope has the most influence. The person who has the most hope has the most influence. Hope is influence. See, um, what we spend our time investing in reaps a harvest of something. There's no such thing as sowing something and there not being some sort of fruit in the natural. And so when you sow to your friends, to your family, to your coworkers in hope and joy, guess what you're gonna gain? Influence and trust. Because here's the reality. No matter who you are, how long you've been alive, where you live, you are hungry for hope. 
You are hungry for hope. You are looking for hope. And you will follow those who have it. See, people um, are in search of the person who can say this. Yes, the world is crazy, but don't despair. That's what people are looking for. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have something to hope in. That life isn't meaningless, that all that is wrong will be made right. Like maybe the pinnacle of the scriptures. Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is a prophetic vision for where the world is headed. And this passage for centuries has caught the attention of the saints and caused them to live live lives of renewal and revival instead of a mundane, hopeless existence. Have you caught this kind of hope? There's this um, famous experiment that's actually a little sad the more I thought about it today, um, uh, where this Johns Hopkins professor named Kurt Richter back in the 1950s, he had this experiment with rats and a bucket of water. And uh, he filled this bucket up with water and he took rats and he put them in the water. And his whole point was he was trying to figure out, do domesticated rats last longer swimming than wild rats? And so he did this whole experiment and you... He let them die. <laughs> Spoiler alert, some of them drown. Um, so he's putting these rats in there, and he's watching how long they swim, and he's making his notes. And then he had this idea. He said, well, I wonder if I were to do this experiment. I'll take a rat, I'll put it in the water, I'll let it swim around for a little bit, then I'm going to pick it up and put it out of the bucket and let it rest. And then I'm going to put that rat back in. He's torturing rats. I'm gonna, this is before pre-PETA. Uh, I'm going to put that rat back in the bucket of water, and I'm going to see how long it swims after it's how to rest. And he found out this. He wrote this. The rats quickly learn that the situation is not actually hopeless. This small interlude made a huge difference. The rats that experienced a brief reprieve swam much longer and lasted much longer than the rats that were left alone. They also recovered almost immediately. When the rats learned that they were not doomed, that the situation was not lost, that there might be a helping hand at the ready. In short, when they had a reason to keep swimming, they did. They did not give up, and they did not go under. Why? Because they had hope. There are people who tonight all across the Willamette Valley who will fall asleep just wondering if there's someone out there who has more hope than they have. And we're to be the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel to say, yes, there is hope. Yes. Because when you become that person of hope, you testify to the greater truth of resurrection 
you testify to the greater truth of God with us now. Now, um, because of this, the incredible value of hope and joy, it's one of the enemy's primary desires to steal your hope and to steal your joy. Um, the whole, whole reason why sin even exists is that it was the enemy's aim to get you to temporarily satisfy yourself on what is lesser than to find true, lasting joy in the Creator. And he does this, he gets us to get rid of our hope, to get rid of our joy primarily by moving us into bitterness, disappointment, and depression. Bitterness, disappointment, and depression. These three things steal our hope and joy because they cause us to question what God has done in the past and what he's promised for the future. The enemy is interested in putting you in places of bitterness, disappointment, and depression because when you get into those spots, you actually lose your influence and the ability to testify correctly to the truth of Jesus. Your mind becomes more consumed with what's wrong than what, he, what is right, what he's already done. I, I don't know about you, but personally, I don't trust the deep things of my heart with someone who is bitter. I, I, I just don't. I don't. They don't have something that I want, and so I don't take the deep things of my heart and give them to that person or share them, share that with that person. I, I don't want their bitterness affecting the joy that the Lord has given me. Um, I, I don't know how many of you guys actually know someone like this, but I, I had. Um, I, I know this guy in my life, uh, and I had uh, like a. You know, I have dinner at a wedding. I, had, I guess a wedding dinner with him at the same table um, this past summer. And I just don't know if I know anyone who's more bitter than this guy. And when you're around somebody who has bitterness, it, it, they just are so volatile. Have you noticed that? You're just waiting. You're like, nobody could say anything that you're going to be happy about or joyful about. Everything that's said or done, you're going to be like, you're going to have your magnifying glass out to find something wrong in it, right? And, and so I'm sitting at this table, and I'm just, I'm like, he's like, hey, so how's it going? I'm like, Good, I'm sorry. You know, I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm always ready to say I'm sorry. Um, just waiting for him to get mad and, and to blow up at something. See, the, the more bitter and angry you become, the more you click into a lifestyle of reaction instead of response. A lifestyle of reacting instead of a lifestyle of response. And so when you're bitter, you're constantly making quick decisions and judgments out of a place of anger instead of taking a moment not to react to what's happening on earth but to respond to what heaven might be saying. You see, the more that somebody is bitter or depressed, the faster it seems that they move through life. It seems like, gosh, you seem like you just aged 10 years in the past year. And it's probably because it's so easy to react to things. There's a million things every day for you to react to. And, and, and so you actually have to speed your life up as you react to each thing. Oh, they cut me off. I'm going to react. Oh, I didn't, I didn't, they didn't have the product I wanted at the grocery store. I'm going to react. Oh, that person said this thing to me. I'm going to react. Oh, I'm just thinking about the way that I was treated when I, was, when I grew up. I'm going to react about that. And just constantly reaction after reaction after reaction. And, and, and what you have to do is you actually have to violate relationship with God in order to react like that and to become, allow your bitterness to take control of you like that 
that. Because instead of taking a moment to be in relationship with the Father, pause to respond to what he says about the situation in front of you. You've already made up your mind about it. See, we're called to be the people who are full of hope and joy, which means that every decision we make, every word that we speak is first filtered through the truth of the gospel. What are you saying about this? What did you do, Lord, and how would that impact the way that I act in this situation? See, we're not a people of hope and joy because we ignore the problems of the world. No, we just don't allow them to have a greater place of influence than his voice. It's about influence. So, so what's your mode this evening, reaction or response? Genesis 4 um, is the story of Cain and Abel, and right before Cain kills his brother, he has this conversation with God. God says this, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. Sin, isn't that such an interesting image? Sin, it's like almost like a, an animal. Sin is crouching at your door. It, what is its desire? To have you, to rule you, so that every decision you make would be based on sin. How was sin crouching for Cain? In the bitterness against his brother. But, and you know the story, you know what happens. Bitterness is so so deadly, so deadly. Bitterness, I think, is actually probably one of the most dangerous heart postures to carry through life because it's like drinking poison hoping that the other person gets sick. All the while, it's eating you alive because you have given your authority that God has given to you, your peace that God has given to you, and you've given, you've given those things away so that bitterness can rule you. And this is what Paul is addressing head on in this passage. Because think about it. If anybody has reason to be in despair, to get bitter, to be hopeless, it's him. He's under arrest. He's in prison. But look down at your Bibles. This is what he says in verse 11. He says this. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances... I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He's learned the secret to being content. Now, what does it even mean to be content? What it means to be content is this. Contentment isn't trying to not want something more than what you have. Contentment is not allowing your lack to define your joy. Think about that. Contentment isn't, oh, I, I'm never gonna need anything else. I'm, I don't want anything more, and so I'm fine. No, that's not contentment. Contentment is not allowing what you lack in life to define the joy that you've been given. And so to move our hearts to a place of contentment, look down at your Bibles. He gives us these tools back up in verse six. He says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Isn't that interesting? I think many of us, we live with this sense that if we really make known what we want to God, he's gonna give us like just the opposite in order to like teach us some kind of character lesson. Have you ever had that? I'm like, Okay, God, 
I really don't want to live there. Okay, so uh, I'm, it's okay. No, I can live here. Just give me that instead. I'm like going to just like reverse psychology God or something. Like what? But that's not what, that's not what Paul instructs us to do. He, he look back, back down at your Bibles. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your what? Your request to God. It's okay to have requests. But here's, here, here's the key to not allowing your requests to define your joy. And this is the key. It's gratitude. It's thankfulness. The power of gratitude. Thankfulness is so powerful. It insulates us from giving influence to something that we were not meant to be influenced by. That's what thankfulness can do in our hearts. There's a, um, one of our elders, Jim uh, Trout, his uh, daughter Sophie um, had a brain tumor uh, show up recently, a few months back, and so they planned a course of action to remove the tumor. She's still recovering, but fortunately it was benign, and, um, and, and all news is good right now. Um, but before she went into this uh, surgery, I remember I was at church and, and Jim asked if I could come and pray with her and a group of other people. And she's there and she like has the, the, this thing on her head that's kind of tracking her brain movement and what's going on in her head, um, preparing her for surgery. And Jim told, and, and I could just feel like there's fear in the room, man. Like this is... It's a big deal to go in and to have, you know, this kind of trauma happen in your head and then to, to actually have, you know, brain surgery. It's crazy. And um, I, we, we prayed, and you could just feel the presence of God came in that room and just really gave uh, people a, a level of peace, just very powerful. And I, Jim, uh, he texted me the next day. He said, you know, um, Sophie wrote something the night before, uh, kind of like an open letter on Facebook. It was... Oh, lost you for a second. Um, she wrote something uh, on Facebook about what she was exp- experiencing and just kind of a letter to her friends. And so he sent it to me and I read it. It was just so powerful, just full of what she's thankful for, the experiences that, that she's had up to this point in life, the people in her life who have touched her and who have meant so much to her. And she's just gratitude after gratitude after gratitude going down through the list. It just gave me chills. Because what could have been despair, what could have been fear, what could have been hurt turned into a sacrifice of praise through her thanksgiving. And with thanksgiving, she insulated her heart not to be touched by what many would have, been call, would have called normal for someone in her position. Oh, that's, that would be so normal to be in fear, so normal to be freaking out. But through gratitude, her heart was insulated so that she could praise God and correctly align her beliefs with who God is, what he's promised, and what he's done. And so Paul says, do you have anxiety? Are you not content? Okay. With thanksgiving, depend on your father. Present your requests. And secondly, he says this in verse eight. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So, so if we are people of hope and joy, how then do we go through pain and difficulty? Well, how did Paul? He kept his focus on the pure, 
the noble and the lovely things of God, and he put them into practice. What he's getting at is he's getting at what do you believe and what habits do you have in your life based on what you believe. See, Paul calls us to put our minds on things that are good, and there's actually connections between some of these things that he has us put our minds on. Just kind of to boil it down, this is what he says. He says, whatever is true and right, those are mentioned in there. Whatever is noble and admirable, those are mentioned in there and connect. Whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Why does he say think about them? You're like, Paul, actually, I'm having a really hard time now. Like, the car's broken down for the fourth time in this month. Paul, I just lost my job. Paul, we just had another miscarriage. Think you want me to think about those things? What good is that gonna do? Why think? Because repentance is fighting the good fight of faith, which is the battle for your mind, for what you believe, for what you think about. Never have more temptation to turn your mind to the negative than when you're going through something negative. You didn't quite get it, okay. Um, You will never have more of a temptation to focus on other things that are negative when you're going through something that's negative. There will always be that temptation there. It's like it multiplies. It's like, and this happened, and this happened, and I haven't thought about this for three years, but that happened also back then. And you just begin to feed your mind on the negative. David writes this in Psalm 23. I want you to think about where his focus is. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Where was was he focused? On the Father. See, there are many people that when they walk through the darkest valley, they pick a plot of land and then they decide to build a home there. And did you, did you, I mean, look at this. It doesn't say, even though I camp in the darkest valley, it's like, even though I'm walking through the valley, I will fear no evil. It's not the end. No, we are called, the people, to be a, a people of hope and joy because we walk through the valley, we don't live in it. So let me ask you this. If you're here tonight, and you're depressed, and you're disappointed, and you're anxious, Are the things that you're thinking about and participating in feeding your depression or speaking to your heart with hope? Is what you're doing making you, building a camp in the valley in your mind on the difficulty or are you choosing to walk through it? We're not ignoring problems here. We're denying them influence in our heart because we have someone who's more influential and it's Jesus Christ crucified and his spirit with us. So why focus on these things? Why would, we, why would he say, think about these things? Because God's truth directly opposes what the enemy may use to persuade us into despair. A focus on the truth, what does it do? It kills lies. A focus on honor. When you focus on things that are honorable, what does it do? It gives you a vision for Christ-like identity in your life. A focus on excellence. What does it do? It inspires us to do beautiful things with God. What you focus your mind on is directly related to the sense of joy and peace that you live with. So I think there's an opportunity for us as a church to to take stock of what am I feeding my spirit with. And then he says this. Look down at your Bibles, verse 9. 
Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. There is a strong correlation between your daily habits and your peace. Why? Because your habits either create space for God to encounter you or they drown him out with a bunch of other noise. One of the things that we like to do around here, one of our habits is to meditate on and focus on the stories of God, on what he's done in our church and in the past. Andoni, right down here, one of our elders, he, um, anytime somebody comes up for prayer and there's some kind of breakthrough or God does something cool, we try to record those stories. I promise you we'll never share those stories without your permission. We'll come to you first, but we really love recording the, the, the story of Saints Hill, the story of what Jesus has been up to here. And the reason for that is that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, it says that the testimony of Jesus carries the spirit of prophecy. And what would that mean? Here's what it means. What it means is that whatever he's done in the past, he, he, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, he can do it again. See, sometimes we see God do amazing things in other people's lives, and we really show our cards a little bit about what we think about the Father, because we get jealous of what he's done for other people. We shouldn't get jealous. Instead, our response will be, if you're a loving, good father and you don't play favorites, if you did it for them, I believe you could do it for me. And so actually, when I see the blessing of others, instead of it increasing my jealousy or despair, it increases my trust in you. Wouldn't that be beautiful? And so, see, when we tell the stories about what God has done, what we're saying in that story is do it again. I think John Piper, he says this. He, he says, God's precedent is equal to God's prophecy. If there's precedent for it in the past, he can do it again in the future. See, these stories of Jesus saving people from sin, sickness, and hell are prophetic for what he wants to do in the life of every person here in this town. And when you take a hold of the testimonies of God and you feed your spirit on them, guys, I'm serious, like I write them down and I read them as part of my devotionals in the morning. I'll like open up my journal, I'm like, I gotta remember what you did back then, I gotta remember what you said back then, why? Because I, I'm going through something right now and I need to have my focus more on what you've done than what's going on around me. Yeah. Hope comes from that. Becoming a people of hope and joy. This is such a simple message, guys. All that it is is it's a life that accurately reflects the truth of the gospel. Accurately reflects, Jesus, you gave your life for me, and you'll do it. And it says, it. what does it say? I forget where it's found, but I think I've quoted it almost every Sunday that we've been together. He set a high standard with his death for the way that he intends to be generous to you for the rest of your life. You didn't deplete heaven's resources when he was crucified. And when we believe that, truly deep down, we become a people of hope and joy and thus a true witness to the gospel. My wife and I are um, 
remodeling this house just down the street from here, and we, uh, I just met my neighbors um, and got kind of am getting to know them. I'm, we're not living at the house yet, so I'm kind of in and out all the time, but I happen to run into my neighbor pretty frequently, and they never asked me what I did, which I'm always like slightly thankful for. Um, so, but finally, it gets onto the subject of like, what do you do? And, and I'm like, oh, we just started a church in Newburgh. He's like, oh, did you know that Newburgh has more churches per capita than any other place in the whole U.S.? I'm like, I know. Tell it to him. I don't know why he told us to plant here. It's like, okay. Um, and, and I was thinking about, he's like, well, tell me about your church. So I was thinking about all the things that I, I could tell him about the church. And, and I didn't tell him that much. I just said, oh, you know, we meet at this time and in this place. And but I was thinking, you know, oh, it would be so cool. I could tell him, you know, yeah, we got all these young people coming and some older people coming and we got great worship. And, and it's just, it's really, really exciting. But I, I didn't tell him those things. And as I went back into the, my office, I sat down and I, and I just thought, I had this thought, I thought, Telling him any of those things would never convince him that Jesus is the way. But you know what does convince people? Is a group of people who have more hope than them and more joy than they do, regardless of the trials that they may be facing. Look down at how Paul ends the letters in verse 21. He says this, Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Did you catch that? Just like in a complete sneaky mic drop. Because what is he saying? All God's people send their greetings, especially God's people who are now within Caesar's household. What is he saying? My witness in chains produced the fruit of the kingdom within the highest office. And now there's people within Caesar's household who are followers of Jesus. The gospel becomes real when people can imagine themselves in your shoes, but your reaction is completely kingdom. So, The call for Saints Hill is this, to be a people of encouragement to those around us. When my wife and I, uh, about a year and a few months ago, when we first heard from the Lord that we were to plant a church here in Newburgh, um, one of my primary questions for the Lord was, what are the impossibilities of Newburgh that you are interested in making possible? Because how many of you guys understand God is attracted to things that are dead? He's attracted to impossible situations because he's desperate to make Uh, things possible that we just never dreamed could be possible. And so that next day, we um, got on a flight down to Reading to visit Jake and Becky, and um, they've obviously, they're the people that we're partnering with to plant this church, and so we were very excited to share the news with them of where we thought God might be leading us. And while we were on the plane, um, you know how, like, I don't know if you sleep on planes. I just instantly, I'm like, boom, I'm asleep. So I'm like, I'm on the plane, and I'm like slowly fading in and out of sleep, and I just felt the Lord say this, over, over Newburgh, he showed me, you know, we kind of sit in this interesting bowl here, like around these, these hills that are kind of all surrounding down in this valley, and he showed me the, these hills right over here, and there was this um, tapestry that he was just covering the hills with, and it was beginning to refract beautiful light and colors of this tapestry, and he said this, I'm laying a garment of praise in that valley for the spirit of heaviness. You know, um, 
culturally, Newburgh has had a couple of rough years the past couple years. There was, uh, if you drive around, there's still evidence of it. You see these signs that say, you know, you matter on them. People have wristbands. And what, what that stems back to is there was a um, young man at George Fox who committed suicide in this really horrific way a couple years ago. And um, not, not only has, did that happen, but um, recently, even just as recent as a couple months ago, there was a, a young man who had a drug overdose who was close with one of the families in our church and um, lives here in town. And, and I even remember, you know, uh, going, I went to George Fox, and while I was there, um, I remember I, I, I was really full of uh, joy while I was there, but I just sensed a heaviness over those who lived in this valley, this, this interesting spirit of depression, honestly. Um, and, and maybe that's not your experience, or it's not it maybe been everybody's experience, but for many people that I've talked to who have called Newburgh home for many years, they've said that, that there's been this, this kind of sense in the air. And so I, I, when, I, when the Lord spoke that to me, I said, yes, that's it. See, see that, that phrase comes from Isaiah 61, and he actually says this, I'm going to give you a garment of praise in exchange for the spirit of heaviness. So he's like, hey, come and give me your heaviness, and I'm gonna give you a garment of praise. How many of you guys understand that worship doesn't just affect those of us in the room? When we sing tonight, we actually are affecting the atmosphere here in Newburgh. It says in Isaiah 42 that when the people of God worship him, he stirs himself up like a mighty man and he goes and he conquers his enemies. So think about this. Your worship is warfare. When you choose to worship, regardless, I'm just gonna stand over here, regardless of, of what's going on in your life, when you give him that sacrifice of praise, what you're doing is you're saying to the principalities over the present darkness, God's about to come and wipe you out. He's stirring himself up like a mighty man to destroy you because this place, and I believe this, I'm prophesying this over Newburgh, that this place would be known as a place of praise instead of having a spirit of heaviness. That the spirit of depression must go. The spirit of suicide must go in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, it says in the gospels that with a word he drove out the demonic and then he gives us the same spirit that he functioned with in his life. And so it is on our shoulders to use our words to encourage and to speak out prophetically what God's intentions are for this valley and that's that this place would be known as a place, of the, a place where the spirit moves. There's a communal aspect to hope. Hope doesn't always come from us believing on our own. That's the great thing about hope is that it can be contagious. Just one person can spark, who has hope beyond anybody else, can spark a fire of hope just almost instantly if people are hungry enough. Isaiah 35 uh, verse three says this, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. So what is he saying here? What he's saying is that you know somebody with feeble knees? You know somebody with the spirit of fear? Your job is to strengthen them, to encourage them. What does it mean to, to encourage? It means to take the courage that you have and put it in them. And then watch what happens when you do that. It says this, then... Will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped? Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy? Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Did you guys catch that? Just from a word of encouragement, 
to the fearful, to the downcast, what happens? There's a supernatural effect. God says, it's almost as if he takes our encouragement, he's like, oh, this is who you wanna bless? Okay, I'm gonna bless them too. And the supernatural breaks out. People begin to have a new uh, sense of hope than they had before. So I wanna put forth tonight that God is not interested in doing his own thing in this valley. He's interested in taking a people of hope and joy and adding grace to who they choose to encourage. It says in the scriptures, life and death is in the power of the tongue. So may we take the hope and joy that we have and may we speak encouragement to the people around us. Let's stand together and pray.